0: It's a very difficult situation, I have to say. The entertainment business has been hit so hard worldwide. My friends in London, my friends in Paris, um, here in New York, America, it's a disaster because it's all privatized. The businesses are privatized, the theaters, the clubs, the, the artists. We have our own little business companies and we are all out of work. We're all basically on unemployment.
1: Welcome to the Mentorate TV podcast and stay curious with Patricia Falco Becali. Welcome back to another edition of COVID-19 from Crisis to Creation here on Mentorate TV. I'm Patricia Falco Becali, your host, and you find me truly starstruck. We have Ute Lempe with her and you just saw her in the video. She is an international star artist, a singer, a dancer, uh, an actress, an author, somebody that has been doing musicals for so many years, be it in Berlin or Paris or London, West Side and of course, New York City's Broadway. You might also know her from cabarets, you might know her from theme music in Disney films, or the fantastic interpretations of, for example, Edith Piaf, or the infamous Marlene Dietrich, and Ute, you've already been in Vision a couple of times, so people know they had a peep in view, thank you so much for being with us here. Thank you for having
0: me, Patricia, thank you.
1: (laughs) Well, Ute, let me first of all ask you, how are you doing right now? The COVID-19 crisis, of course, continues to roll on. You're in the middle of New York, Upper West Side. How's the situation? How are you and and other fellow artists dealing right now?
0: Personally, I'm doing very well. I have to say um, this is a hiatus, a time out in my life that I never had I've been working my entire life. I stopped maybe four or five months when I was highly pregnant and when the children were born four times, as you know, with my four kids. But otherwise, I never stopped working. And I have to say the time passes very quickly. Um, I enjoy my time home. I enjoy just doing very simple things and that I actually always dreamt about doing, uh, like sorting through things, organizing, studying, um, do, reading books I've never read and uh, in the, put in the corner for a long time and just being with my children and cooking and cleaning and all of that therapeutic stuff. I can actually yeah. kind of enjoy it. Yeah, but altogether, together, um, it's a very difficult situation. I have to say the entertainment business has been hit so hard Worldwide, my friends in London, my friends in Paris, um, the, the, here in New York, America, it's a disaster because it's all privatized. The businesses are privatized, the theaters, the clubs, the, the artists. We have our own little business companies and we are all out of work. We're all basically on unemployment. Mm. And um, it, this is not easy because the life expenses keep going, the rent, the the, the mortgages. Education for the children, living expenses, health insurance, all of this keeps going. And we really literally have no income and very little bit of unemployment um, um, help. So, uh, but also for the mental health, I have to say, it's it's, it's not easy. It's been um, six months now. Basically, my last concert was on March 14th. I was in Brussels. I was performing with a symphony orchestra, The Seven Deadly Sins, The Sieben Toten von Battlebrecht, and oh. a of one of my favorite pieces. That same day, uh, Donald Trump had announced on the news that he would close the borders to Europe. But he had uh, failed to, um, um, in, to add to the fact that for citizens and residential aliens, uh, we were still allowed to come in later oh, on.
1: Home, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but
0: I thought, oh my God, I have to get home to my family. I didn't know. I bought a ticket that same moment. I was on the flight the next day, and I've been home ever since, uh, since March uh, 15th. And yeah. Um, Everything is cancelled, postponed. Yes. First, it was postponed to October, then uh, to November, and now these concerts are postponed to the next year, two thousand twenty-one. Uh, we will we will see um, how things are developing. I am not too optimistic, even though in Europe, um, obviously. Uh, people uh, and, and theaters uh, institutions where social gatherings are um, involved uh, are organized very well and slowly restarting their businesses that is not happening in the states we know the infection rates are very high up here we've been not been led properly by a leader like Angela Merkel did in Germany very well I think mm-hmm. better than probably any other nation and um, uh, people are following the rules yeah. um, Germans do <laughs> <laughs> that Amer- Americans are not that easy to uh, yeah. to, uh, to organize and to dictate um, yeah. so uh, we, we know that especially in the sun Belt, uh, people are doing whatever they want to do, yes and um, uh people have not been wearing masks they're they're not mandatory they're not following the rules of social distancing and uh our president donald trump has not been imposing this or leading it or guiding or suggesting it properly and we're, we're in a difficult situation new york city is still beautiful Um, the summer was beautiful, the parks are filled, the Central Park is filled, the gyms are closed, so everyone who wants to stay fit goes into the park and jogs and rides the bicycle, the children are out on the playgrounds. Life has come back to the city that was completely eliminated, actually, through the month of April, May, and June. And uh, slowly, this kind of like uh, beauty of New York that we love, uh, Uh, is coming back, but the cultural life is dead. And that is um, one big aspect and uh, an attraction of New York and that that is missing.
1: Absolutely. And a couple of weeks ago, I did speak to Clive Gillinson, of course, uh, the chief of Carnegie Hall, and uh, he said exactly the same thing. And whilst he was trying to sound optimistic, um, he also is looking at anything that is being postponed, will be postponed, uh, most likely until 2021. Yes, and leadership is a big issue. However, you know, the series which I'm doing right now on Mentor TV, which is about crisis to creation. So I see you are very active still. Yes, you're in your family setting. Yes, you have to be in New York City for somebody who is such a globetrotter like you that must feel strange at times or surreal. Um, But you've been doing a lot. You've been doing the rendezvous with Malin Dietrich. You've been doing the live with Carnegie Hall and with Clive himself. How is that experience? And how do you as an, an artist really not only keep up the energy but feel the closeness? Because... When I see your performances, Ute, you are with me as an audience. I've seen you live on stage in Chicago and London many years ago, and you're dynamite. I mean, I feel you. I'm getting, you know, goosebumpy right now. Do you? How does it feel for you? Do you actually think that you reach the audience with that energy in the same way, or is it just really
0: something that um, is good for now, a creation for now, but? The live streams are a different platform and this is definitely um, maybe a platform that will uh, increase its value, its importance nowadays with, uh, with COVID and throughout the coming years. But it's, of course, not the live moment, even though some of them are indeed live. The Carnegie Hall special was totally live on the air for an hour and a half. It it was very scary. And I know how big the mailing list of Carnegie Hall is. I I was thinking, my God, there's probably like 100,000 people watching this. And we had indeed um, just 80,000 clicks on Facebook and more on their website. There was a very large audience later on through the library who watched that special um the, this was a special recorded on the 21st of april let's quickly talk about it because it's very important um uh, in my repertoire in my life to um to talk about this subject it was a commemoration of the holocaust um i have in my program, and I'm actually scheduled to perform in Carnegie Hall next April, live at Dunkel Hall, this program called Songs for Eternity. Yes. It is dedicated to the um, people, to the Jewish people that were incarcerated in the concentration camps and ghettos and still created m- music in those moments of total darkness and fear, and um, music as an outcry for, of hope, an outcry of still love and celebrating the beauty of few moments and uh, celebrating faith and uh and um uh, songs that were sung to just uh, also console the children uh, cradle songs songs that were sung in the long lines uh, yeah. waiting for a cup of soup and just important songs that uh, sometimes were delivered just mouth-to-mouth, word-by-word, uh, not even written down, scripted, but just heard And later on, right after the war, 1946. And then I did another live stream in June for the Dresden Fest- Festival. Uh, w- w- the director of the Dresden Festival is Jan Vogler, a German cellist, who lives actually in the neighborhood just two blocks away from me. And he said, he actually played on my special to of I said, "Ute, I, I want you to... Uh, uh, present the artists with me and contribute and I did a bunch of uh, recordings here on my rooftop terrace uh, at, at the sunset. yeah that was really beautiful. I saw
1: the one in May on May 20th and I, it just blew me away and, you know the wind was going through your hair and,
0: uh, and it was on my little computer with no special audio technique <laughs> and, and just cool. to sing it. it was not easy <laughs> Yes, and now uh, I'm going to be doing on October 25th here in New York from um, a beautiful concert hall, uh, my uh, rendezvous with Marlene. That was not easy to schedule because this will be technically more demanding. I need a crew, a film crew with five cameras, an audio designer, lighting designer. So we'll be like uh, 10, 15 people and we had scheduled it for September. It was Im- impossible. The theater did not uh, permit these uh, amount of people uh, in, in, clustered together in a room. But now we found a hall who is permitting this. And so we had postponed it to the 25th of October. I hope you, uh, everyone around the world. Yeah, well, watch.
1: you know, I, I can't wait because um, one of your shows was, just, it was, it was supposed to happen on the on last Saturday, the 19th. Yes, and this but one is down, the Let's talk about you. You're the star of the show. And I have prepared a little screen share with our audience. And please allow me to to share it with everybody here on Mentory TV. And this is this following clip. And I hope it will work. Oh, no, that's not it. That's me with the school
0: in 1969 exactly oh my god where
1: are you here it is i mean i really how could i not share this Uh, because for me i watched this and apart from you know being swept off my feet i had the feeling that you were 18 you were at the beginning of your career and you kind of almost almost preview what your life would be like. You continued your job, you combined it with a private life, also having four children, Um, and the moment that you really reached stardom, your breakthrough, was when Savary took you uh, to Paris to play um, um, Sally Bowles in Cabaret. Tell me a little bit about about this moment. About how determined, how much work, discipline, or just you know, happy-go-lucky, positive attitude was really the driver behind your career.
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely, the driver behind my um, my career, my work, my ambition, my um, my my never-ending, always going forward mode was just love for music, you know, not applause, success, Mm -hmm. fame, anything like it, just the pure pleasure to express music, storytelling. Um, It just felt like a a reality that I wanted to live in. It was a lot more satisfying, important, deep, grand than the day-to-day life small talk with people, all that I thought was pretty boring. I really like to dig into the creation of life and the conflicts of life that are addressed in literature and theater plays, addressed in songs, addressed in screenplays or the, uh, stage plays. And of course, just the love of expressing music and dance and, and with a voice and, and, and singing. And the, so that, that, was the, that was the drive.
1: Yeah, and the ability, I heard you once say, saying, well, you know, my life is work. Work is my life. So it is
0: just what you embody. Yeah, it didn't really feel like work ever, I have to say. It always felt like a privilege. And uh, what then felt like work was... um, to be um, having to perform every day. You know, once you are captured in these productions, these music, especially musical productions, where it was Cats in Vienna in the beginning, 1983, Peter Pan in Berlin, 1984, 85, uh, then Stuttgart-Staatstheater with the uh, with the theater plays, Fassbinder plays, then Bar- Paris with Cabaret, Jérôme Savary, and Chicago and London Broadway, where you have to perform uh, six, seven, or eight shows a week, that all always felt unnatural. I never liked to do that. I always um, felt like that, that's too much. I can't give that much. Uh, of course, you have it in you and you get used to uh, being exhausted. You get used to just like working on full flame and always being on the on the brink of a total collapse and exhaustion and physical and vocal collapse. But I, I never liked to push, push it that hard. Yeah. The original flame, though, couldn't be... Uh, eliminated thank god and when i went i always really liked having my solo shows and having being able to um Uh, organize my own schedule the performance schedule the the concert schedule flying around the world doing my thing my shows uh, with 20 songs that are just from all different repertoires a storyline that i create that i want to tell working with my musicians that are my family that i can improvise with. they're like my 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 crew my 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 family my brothers and sisters and uh that's when i'm the most comfortable doing my yeah
1: yeah you 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 left i think um the the Daily life, the musical art about 20 years ago. And you, you said once uh, one of your favorite pieces and, and uh, people, um, apart from Sally Bowles in Cabaret, was also in the Seven Deadly Sins, Anna. Uh, Anna um, is Anna 1, the strong one, and Anna 2, the weaker one. And I wonder whether, you know. It, Anna, one was the strong one because she just had to motor through to feed her family. And I wonder, you know, your own career and maybe the tough times, did you identify with yourself? Okay, I have to do these daily shows. It must not be routine, but it feels like a routine. I want to do my own stuff. I want to jet. I want to, you know, however, did you actually identify that you had to do certain things and maybe compromise your inner values or real likes, heartfelt likes and wants in order to get where you are right now?
0: Yes, I would say life has always have been a complete compromise—a compromise, a compromise uh, between the personal life, the uh, the the, the uh, responsibilities towards my family, my children, and the balancing act to do uh, concert tours, to be on Broadway, to do all of this. It was always a very split. A uh, personality uh, thing that that hurt. It was never easy, and there were sacrifices on both sides. When I was on Broadway, I couldn't uh, tuck in my little children. They were little at the time. Now they're in their twenties, but at the time they were like they four tuck and you two. in now. They
1: tuck you in. I have that for yeah. my
0: <laughs> <laughs> almost. You know, there were four and two, and I was terribly sorry at night. I couldn't be there for them, read them stories uh, for almost two years in a row, and I missed a part of that uh, childhood. But then again, these were. Of uh, just yes, it was a, a, a difficult ba- balance act all the time. But I have to say, the compromise I didn't make too much in my art. Uh, yeah, in the Broadway productions and musicals, yes, I all wasn't completely happy sometimes with the direction and with the production, and I felt like, oh, this is really shallow. In musical, I thought, oh, this is too much slapstick. When is there <laughs> finally some kind of a deep emotion here? But then again, I could uh, recover this in my other like ch- ch- chanson career, yeah. the French chanson that, that I actually do since uh, since the uh, '90s, late '80s. I started with my solo shows in, uh, in 1989, and the Kurt Weill career um, that the, you know. The first recording started in 1987 so that career was a parallel career to the stage career it was launched in uh, the late of the 80s and that's where I could uh, perform worldwide with my Kurt Weill, the Battle Brecht, Berlin cabaret um, um, repertoire so um, yes it was never easy I would say I always felt like it was a step forward and a step back a step forward and a step back I, I thought uh, wh- where am I <laughs> Sorry, that That's was you a <laughs> cool. I, You can leave that, in. I don't. I don't mind. I don't mind. Um, uh, so I always felt uh, it was never easy, and sometimes I say this to my kids and my grown-up kids, and they say, "Mom, don't pretend everything's so hard in life." But honestly, like, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, they they say that to me, and but. It's true. I, I didn't have that uh, kind of life where what they have uh, when I, they went to college, they had parties and studied and drinking and f- fun and, and stuff like this. I, that, that really never happened. It was a fine line of discipline and pleasure in my life. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, I've done, I
1: studied at the Dr. Horse Conservatorium Ballet School, never made it to Pinot Bausch. Um, and yeah, discipline. If anything, we, we carry forward, I think, is that you've got to do what you've got to do. If you want that, that's the sacrifice you take. And there's no, there's no question about it. You pull up your panties and you march. And sometimes, you know, um, the generation we are, we are in right now, sometimes I think that is a bit something they might might need to get back into i don't know how you see it with your
0: children but let me the the greatest motivation for this is obviously the passion that that fuels all of it and the the problem is with sometimes the newer generation that it's so hard for them to find that passion because there's so many other things that are distracting them in life yeah the digital world the the videos and and this and the culture, the the wegwerf culture we say the throwaway culture, uh, the short short-lived um, um, uh, attraction of, of, of music and so and so. It's it's not this one thing that you dedicate everything and every bone and every blood cell in your body to. Like
1: because there's uh, no other thing. You have that passion. You know it. And you have to follow it, and you do what it takes.
0: Yes, and it's it's a little different to that. You know,
1: I wanted to talk about that actually with you a little later on, but why don't we just pick up on this? And that is being distracted. You know, being a star when you started, it was hard work, the opportunity, decisive moments, decisive people giving you a break, the opportunities. These days, in order to be a star, the only thing you need to do is hold your camera there, post it on in Instagram, wiggle your butt, be it 10 seconds on TikTok or whatever platform. How do you explain, for example, to your children what real it means to be a star, that it might be something really to do with effort, with a hard life, with sacrifice, and not just looking in a camera in a nice way?
0: Well, I don't feel like a star at all, to tell you the truth. Uh, and I never felt I didn't. I am not... I'm not that confident. I always am filled with doubts whether it's the right thing that I'm doing. Is this tasteful? Is this classy? Is this um, musically um, sophisticated enough? Is it the right choice? And my my children certainly don't see me as a star. They challenge me to the bone every day, and uh, I don't live the life. Uh, that's just a term. And sometimes when I'm called a uh, star, You know, it's, it's a nice compliment, but you know, maybe I did achieve something in my life, but I am so uh, modest with my achievements, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I I, I cannot really. Uh, the, I know that you know when I'm on tour and I have to do a lot of interviews, and that that started very early. The the um the, you know the the aspect of fame uh, in 1987 when I won the Moliere Award with Cabaret. Suddenly I had like a, six journalists a day who wanted to talk to me and ask me these questions, and there were stereotype questions often, and they didn't. Um, they weren't ref- my answers weren't reflected properly in the newspaper articles or whatever. So I thought, okay, what is this? This is a different uh, monster of manipulation uh, the whole uh, aspect of uh, marketing um, yourself and being presented in the media. And I I learned very early on that... that's not necessarily uh, something that can make you happy. This kind of reflection in the media, for even if they built you up, like you know they did with me, and especially in actually only in Germany, they built me up, built me up to the rising one woman Farland Wunder in Germany, and then they they, they drop you down uh, like a dead fish a month later. So uh, I was uh, very quickly uh, taught the, the, the reality of, of the media.
1: <laughs> no, no, absolutely. And uh, that is just perfect what you're saying. That, that I felt especially the time when you declined another season of staying in Paris um, to do cabaret and instead for double the money, but it seems it was never the, the real pull, but it was the challenge in developing yourself and evolving uh, as an artist. You went to Frankfurt, to Germany. Um, you were managed, I think, by Marek Lieberberg, Hansi Hoffmann. He was uh, also, in terms of the PR engine you're talking about, I think he was one of the key drivers. And this is when I felt the Utel Emperor that I knew really exploded internationally. And then, you know, towards the end of the 90s, 88, 89, I also felt this kind of, what you were just saying, this kind of backlash. That must have felt horrible. I mean, it's true crisis and then what we're seeing now to creation moment.
0: Well, Merit Lieberberg, the manager at the time, he catapulted my, uh, my visibility and, you know, kind of my fame in Germany. That was his task. My international career was parallelly, as I said before, established through the international record releases of Ute Lember Sing's Kurt Weyl. Now this was a very important thing, and I want to talk about it quickly. It was 1988 that I recorded in the Hansa Studios in Berlin. The first round of these records. Still the Cold War. I remember that I looked out of the window. There was the wall, and. Um, there were it, it was a, a, a project that was called the re-recording of the uh, band music by the nazis the so-called by the nazis degenerate music and art music it was a very important project launched by a classical record company Decca in london it was a international project from the start not a german project at all now that this album though in germany had no success at all nobody wanted to hear in 1988 Uje Symons's kotweil and Bertolt Brecht it was some kind of classical repertoire where they had the three penny operas at the at the Schauspielhauses in Germany and it was not uh, something that the Germans wanted to look at at the time of Weimar they, they were not interested the german culture still was somehow st- st- uh, stagnated at at this at this time it was had difficulties to identify itself Uh, it was not post-war and it it, it was certainly brilliant in the theater world and opera world and all of that and also in the pop world but still the identity was still uh, hollowed out by the Nazis who had shattered everything and I always say what would have happened if the Nazis would have shattered, wouldn't have shattered the uh, culture of the Weimar Republic after 33, it would have been an incredible cultural Mm. centrum of the world Berlin with its art at the time but it came differently so at the time when uh, they tried to uh, slam me in Germany in 1989 and I was like commercialized by this manager this was like in the musical world it didn't matter in an international context because I, this was already established so in the Germany I had the Achterbahn the roller coaster career yep. at this time but not anywhere else so when I uh, finally um um, uh, really uh, felt like, oh, okay, this is like, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. I moved to Paris, I moved to London, I moved to other places when they had no idea what was yeah, going on. A local that, problem. Yeah. <laughs> I know,
1: that was a local... <sighs> It was a good, well point. And then you never turned back anyway. And I think it is amazing to look at, you know, the plethora of different genres in in your business you feel comfortable with. And what I'm looking at and the way I've experienced you also from the interviews I've seen I watched, I read, is you are so natural, easygoing, always a can-do, positive attitude, um, easy with a team. At the same time, your true passion for Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Wein, who are very political, very critical towards, of course, the political system, also critical towards uh, the U.S., uh, which is your Wahlheimat, where, where you are living. Uh, and also, you played Marie Antoinette uh, and also Anna, as we were saying, in The Seven Deadly Sins, that I got the feeling, you're so easygoing, but you like the depth that, 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 you know, tragic, perhaps, situations not person, situation, and the way they deal with it. What is really is this, this, this attraction you feel? How do you feel so home in these roles? And that wraps up the first part of my conversation with Ute Lemper. More to come. Make sure to tune in.